Oye, oye. You have to say it three times, Andy. Come on. Oye. There's the third one. Welcome to Find Laws, Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. We have a Supreme Court opening here, and this is, I guess you could consider this one of our first ever emergency breaking news podcasts. Breaking news like two weeks later. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I forgot to introduce us. You can tell that Laura's not here. Because we're already a mess. (laughs) Because we're already a mess. Um... I'm Andy Leonetti. I'm the reluctant host this week. <laughs> I'm here with Veda Himetha. Hey. And Joe Fabush. You're doing a great job, Andy. <laughs> great Thanks. job, Andy. And we are going to be talking about some upcoming changes on the Supreme Court. Yeah, we have um, an opening as of last week officially when Justice Breyer uh, announced his retirement and has been getting obvious lots of buzz because this, uh, I mean, it's supposed to happen pretty seldomly, but it's happened a lot in the past few years. We've had so many openings and nominees and it's kind of... We've had a lot of strategic retirements and... And unstrategic ones. And unstrategic departures that have made... Departures. That have made, that have made people <sighs> quite upset. <laughs> yeah, and, and I did wonder if um, RBG's late departure uh, surprise motivated uh, Breyer to retire if he might have otherwise tried to hold on for longer. Do you guys know? I mean, it certainly motivated activists to be yelling, Stephen Breyer, yeah. retire now. <laughs> for sure. But they were but they were yelling at RBG, too. And I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of did think she was immortal because she did survive two bouts of cancer at the bench and not take a day off. Uh, either way, I, I do think this was a wise choice by Breyer, especially considering uh, Biden with, with this vow that he gave uh, on his presidential campaign trail to um, diversify SCOTUS, given the opportunity. A little bit about the demographic history of the Supreme Court. This should come as no surprise. Uh, most of it is pretty whitewashed. Uh, we've had 114 justices. And dude washed, too. Do wash. I'm not gonna. That's a that's a good PG way to put it. I was gonna say something else. Um, family podcast. We've had family G-rated podcast. Uh, yeah, SCOTUS has had 114 justices, and all but six of them have been white men, ho white men, if you will. And only uh, there have only been two black justices in all of SCOTUS history. The first one, of course, was Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Thurgood Marshall is obviously no longer on the court, but uh, Clarence Thomas is, and he is the second and last black justice. We've only had five women justices. Four of them were white. So the first was Sandra J. O'Connor, um, RBG, obviously, Elena Kagan, and Amy Comey Barrett. Um, only one woman of color have we had, uh, Justice Sotomayor. And so we've had zero black women on the court. And when Biden was on the campaign trail during the 2020 presidential elections, he obviously had vowed to choose a woman of color as his running mate at a debate, Biden also promised that he, given the opportunity, would choose a specifically black woman nominee to the Supreme Court, I believe. And he certainly reiterated on that promise upon Breyer's retirement announcement. President Biden said, I quote, the person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my view. I made that commitment during the campaign for president, and I will keep that commitment. You know, this has obviously been 
a controversial decision and stance to have, especially a lot of criticism unsurprisingly coming in from conservatives. A lot of critics are comparing him with President Reagan, who notably had a similar parallel back in the 80s leading up to his nomination of the first ever female Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Critics of Reagan claim that this this vow was sort of like a stunt to ameliorate his reputation of being anti-woman, um, especially since when he was governor of California, he'd only nominated men to the state Supreme Court, um, which is a big, which is a contrast to President Biden, who chose a female running mate for vice president. When R- Reagan was criticized, he said he opposed tokenism and false quotas to correct past injustices, but he also added, I am acutely aware that within the guidance of excellence, appointments can carry enormous symbolic significance. This permits us to guide by example, to show how deep our commitment is and to give meaning to what we profess. And so I think that parallels a lot of what Biden is saying, um, that he plans to commit to standards of you know excellence, experience, integrity, all these things that any Supreme Court justice should have, but at the same time, lead by example, where a lot of people are accusing him of, you know, affirmative action or tokenism and things like that. I do want to jump in really quick because you might be wondering how can somebody who's going to be working for the federal government have race at all be considered as an issue? Because obviously, if you're applying for a federal job, uh, the race cannot be a factor. But because this is a political appointment, Title VII does not apply. Uh, So it just flat out doesn't matter. You can use whatever criteria you want, including race, including gender, sexual orientation. All of the things that are protected classes for other jobs do not apply to certain presidential nominations. That's a great point, Joe, especially considering a lot of especially conservative critics of President Biden, are bringing in the university affirmative action cases as an example of how he shouldn't be able to do this, that we've established that you can't and or shouldn't do this. So it's uh, presidentially and presidentially irrelevant, is what yeah. you're saying. <laughs> yeah, Nic- nicely played. <laughs> I like that. Uh, that's what I'm here yeah. for. So now that President Biden hasn't made any decisions officially as of yet, but he does seem to have a shortlist going on. Him and Breyer seem to have a lot of respect for each other, and he seems to be trying to be mindful of filling Breyer's seat in a way that does the justice justice. Man, they just keep getting worse. We're all downhill from here. Um, But to talk, you know, before we talk about the nominees, uh, let's maybe talk a little bit about Justice Breyer's own legacy. Um, Andy, what can you tell us about the, the Stephen Breyer retirement tour <laughs> kicks off now with stops in Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> through through, uh, through the end of the current term. And that's there were a lot of quick reactions about his retirement. I'm sure a lot more will be written on him in the coming weeks and months. I myself, as a non-lawyer a non-devotee of of <laughs> the minutia of the court uh just always kind of regarded him as kind of milk toast um but <laughs> there i was i was pretty uh floored to see some extremely strong opinions about him and his legacy to start off i think what's most important his lasting legacy is that he is 
one of the of SCOTUS's like foremost authorities on on administrative law. He literally wrote the book on it that is used in law schools today. It's called Administrative Law and Regulatory Policy. Um, yep. <laughs> I remember that and one. <laughs> it kind of it it informs his view of government. A lot of reactions to his retirement, people have regarded him as a very pragmatic justice, that his decisions are guided by maneuvering around the real life consequences to the people affected by the decision. And he described in a 2002 Law Review article, he described that himself as the real world consequences of a particular interpretive decision valued in terms of basic constitutional purposes play an important role in constitutional decision-making, which is his deep faith and trust in the administrative state and not just uh, relying on Congress to make all the rules. Uh, he had, the, man has, the man has a deep and abiding love for bureaucrats, it seems. Um, <laughs> Adrian Vermeule, a former clerk of Scalia and a co-author and collaborator with Breyer at Harvard University has described as, quote, the idea that we not only have negative liberty from things government wants to do to us, but we have a kind of positive liberty, which is the liberty as a nation to come together and act affirmatively for the common good. Um, and one way we do that is through government and government helps us as a community and as individuals to carry out plans that we want to carry out and to live healthy, safe, and fruitful lives. Now, uh, and I'll note that the man who said that, Adrian Vermeule, is a Catholic integralist. So not exactly a liberal like uh, Breyer is being regarded as, but also someone who believes in like Breyer's view of common good regulation. To be clear, though, that is an extremely controversial point, particularly the part about affirmative Mm -hmm. constitutional rights. So I'm not surprised that he got some some blowback for that one. <laughs> yeah, Breyer is uh, is not an originalist in any sense. In one of his last include one of his last dissents, unless I guess we haven't seen what's coming from him in the coming months. Uh, maybe maybe he'll get the opportunity to have some more parting shots. But one of his last dissents is going to be in the case that was just decided recently where the court essentially tossed OSHA's emergency workplace vaccine requirement. Mm -hmm. Breyer's dissent in that case was essentially arguing that the agency overseeing workplace safety, OSHA, has the appropriate expertise in matters concerning workplace safety and that the courts should not intervene, whereas the the majority basically felt that that was a matter best left to Congress. And I just wanted to note, none of this is particularly surprising given, I think, his most recent book published last year, which uh, it's called The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. Uh, sounds very doom and gloom, but it, <laughs> I think it talks about you know how judges, justices, jurists, are politicians in robes. And, uh, you know, it, and, and basically that SCOTUS, at least, has become too political and overstepped its bounds in, in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some big opinions that he's written. 2000, Stenberg v. Carhart wrote for the 5-4 majority 
that concluded that a Nebraska law that limited abortion was unconstitutional. He had a noted dissent in 2015, Glossop v. Gross, where he asked, where he said that it was time for the court to reevaluate whether the death penalty violates the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. He quoted decades of stats since the reintroduction of the death penalty and taken together with his own 20 years of experience on the court that lead me to believe that the death penalty in and of itself now likely constitutes a legally prohibited cruel and unusual punishment. So uh, he doesn't seem to be particularly uh, adherent to like a diehard stare decisis justice like a lot of more conservative mm-hmm. justices are. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And then in 2005, this is a good this is another good example of that where he cast the deciding vote in a pair of cases dealing with religious monuments in public spaces. In Van Orden v. Perry, he his concurring opinion, siding with the majority, allowed a Ten Commandments monument to remain in place at the Texas State Capitol. But then in McCreary County versus the ACLU the same year, he voted with a majority that said two Ten Commandments exhibits at a Kentucky courthouse violated the First Amendment because they actively promoted religion, where... Essentially, in the Texas case, he wrote that because that monument had stood uncontested for decades and that no one had griped, and it's essentially not a, he's saying essentially this isn't a big deal versus the McCreary County case, the Kentucky case, where he said the motivations of the officials planning that planning this display essentially amounts to government promotion of religion, even though they both had to deal with public displays of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> he seems to have a more of an ability to see, consider, and consider the real-world implications of of these of these rulings. I think, rather than be more dogmatic mm-hmm. about ideologies. Yeah, yeah. The one, the one thing that I will now also note. Um, that I was very that I this is shows my uh, how much I didn't know about the man, how much he animated uh, antitrust nerds out there. Uh, the general <laughs> did not the know either. Prevailing wisdom amongst uh, anti-monopolists is get out and don't let the door hit you on the way out. See you never. Um, <laughs> Chairman William Kovacic argued that Breyer shares the blame for the retrenchment of antitrust law over the last 40 years. Uh, said that Breyer, quote, pushed important elements of antitrust doctrine in permissive directions. Several decisions that he made while serving in the First Circuit um, also noted that he granted corporations greater freedom to use um, below-cost prices to marginalize rivals or to acquire and maintain market dominance. Um, and to use price squeezing. And in a 2013 decision, Breyer gave brand name pharmaceutical companies uh, substantial latitude to pay generic manufacturers to postpone their entry into the market. This, this is called, quote, pay for delay agreements that impose, you know, essentially passes on high costs to consumers. But that, but that, Anti-monopolists have essentially argued is legalized bribery on the part of like large drug companies to generic manufacturers. Uh, <laughs> just read it. Reading the last few days, anti-monopolist fervor 
at the at the retirement of Briar, and I just thought it was it was quite humorous. Someone noted uh, Matt Stoller. He's a prominent substacker in the anti-monopoly space. Also, former Hill staffer and everything wrote a very long um, Substack newsletter this week about quote the the quote destruction that that Breyer has left in his wake and noted that when he was sitting in on a panel or not on a panel but listening into a discussion at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University which is essentially like the non Ivy League place where you want to go if you're like a free marketeer ultra libertarian let corporations do what they want that as news broke of Breyer's retirement the mood in the room grew to met a lot of these people being very stressed out because they knew that Biden was probably going to nominate someone much more progressive and much more um, in line with with modern progressive thought. Someone noted a for, another former FTC official, his name was Charles Muller, wrote wrote of Breyer that Breyer's philosophy was basically one of that those harmed by monopoly practices at something like say Boston's Logan airport could just go out and build competing airports <laughs> was that Breyer had such a, like an optimistic view of the American free market system. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's a euphemistic way to put it. Maybe I think critics would say he has protected big business privilege from antitrust lawsuits for too long. And I think a lot of people who are anti-monopolistic are celebrating his departure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just <laughs> well, and it's, it's a good example of all the different ways that a Supreme court justice can anger certain groups and yes. what a lot of people are looking for when they look at new nominees. Uh, you know, there are special interest groups out there that are analyzing all of these candidates for what they would deem troubling history or viewpoints. And so that's one example where Breyer has had a long and respected career on the bench, but you know, you're not going to make everybody happy, especially well, if you're on the Supreme Court. Yeah. And it also speaks to kind of the media, like mainstream media's ability to boil all of these nine justices down to basically nothing beyond which president nominated and which, quote, team they're on, if they're part of the, quote, liberal block or the mm -hmm. conservative yeah. block or the, quote, you know, the Kennedy or O'Connor swing vote. And yeah. <laughs> that it is a lot more, it is a lot more complex than that. And then you said, Andy, he had um, a lot of experience in administrative law, too, mm -hmm. right? Or, and I think a lot of people in the legal industry are, are maybe going to be curious about the future of the Chevron Doctrine. He's had some recent brushings with uh, the Chevron Doctrine against uh, Justice Gorsuch, um, who in a, in, in a decision in the past couple of years, I think, was trying to... I think break it down. Uh, but, Could you, know, you define break... the Chevron doctrine? <laughs> that, that's a whole can of worms. That um, <laughs> that might actually be worth its own episode. I think we we definitely <laughs> should do a podcast about yeah. that. Uh, like my 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 two two seconds on it is basically it's a deference standard in, in okay. administrative law that gives a lot of leeway to the authority and expertise of of, of agencies that are. 
I don't know, OSHA or the FDA, any kind mm-hmm. of agency that has a, a an expertise, um, this doctrine gives a lot of a, a power to them because they have the authority and training, or sorry, because they have the ex- expertise, background training, and, and, and people who like know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so Breyer has sort of defended this, but he's also opted for a, a sort of a weaker deference standard under Skidmore, which is a different case, which argues that courts should defer to persuasive agency interpretations, um, a little bit weaker than Chevron. All that is to say he is, uh, he seems to side towards keeping Chevron in check against more conservative justices like Neil Gorsuch. I think, I think Stephen Breyer would be a fan of my fever dreams of benevolent dictatorship as well. (laughs) Benevolent technocratic dictatorship. (laughs) (laughs) And well, speaking of speaking of like dictatorship and keeping power, I mean, you might not be wrong because I mean, he did obviously make the decision finally to retire uh, in the nick of time, maybe. But uh, I remember like last summer, like last spring, my law school professors were just going off on him because they seemed to think he was refusing to retire to promote his latest book. Um <laughs> And they, I'm not kidding. I mean, I don't know if this, they, they were going off on him on, on Twitter and they were comparing him to RBG. They were like, didn't he learn anything from RBG? Like she seemed to eventually choose fame over mm-hmm. the best interests of the country. And he seemed to be like maybe doing the same thing, but it seems that he has maybe because of all the critics backlash uh, eventually decided to step down. So that's it's almost great. like a lifetime appointment might not actually be a good idea. Mm, we got to do an episode on that. <laughs> Too many cans. Yeah, of oh yeah. I was just going to say, this is such a minefield. We could get sidetracked uh, and talk for about three hours. About of all of these, stuff. of all of these not new, new potential nominees we're about to talk about. Are any of them, are any <laughs> of them like 27 years old or something like that? If we're just going to play like pure, power politics with the court the youngest one <laughs> the youngest one is um the california supreme court justice leandra kruger uh she's 45 okay. now and so if she was confirmed then she would be the youngest justice since clarence thomas who joined the court at 43 That's oh he was that young okay yeah yeah and so it, it would be a big deal um the other two are um a ju- judge Childs, the South Carolina federal district judge, is 55, and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judge, Kentaji Brown-Jackson, is 51. So, yeah, Justice Kruger has almost a decade. 20 years from now, my prediction is that we will just be nominating some sitting justice's most recent clerk who's like 30. That's kind of what we're <laughs> yeah. doing. Yeah, no, that's we're, not. Far. We're nominating at least literally one of Breyer's own previous clerks, um, which is which is pretty much a pattern. Like it is, it has been, like you know, there's there's all these like stamps that you have to almost requirements that you have to have if you're going to be a strong nominee. It seems for a presidential uh, appointment to the Supreme Court, um, and historically, so many of them have not only had their own history of Supreme Court clerkships, but many of them have clerked for the very judges that they're replacing. And so, yeah, that's it's not surprising at all. I think the most surprising candidate that we have is Judge 
child. She's kind of an outlier in not checking a lot of these Ivy League rubber stamp boxes. Um, oh, Joe, can no. you tell us a little bit more about her? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I know. I was, God forbid. <laughs> I was actually going to jump in because that was the perfect segue because, as you mentioned, she is not the typical private high school going to an Ivy League law school, then clerking for a Supreme Court justice. Judge Childs actually went to the University of South Carolina, which, gasp, is a public school. Oh, my um, God, no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, those, for those of you listening, I, I say gasp because, of course, the University of South Carolina is a wonderful school that is a very, very good reputation. It's a very good place to go to school, but it's not Harvard. It's not Yale. And were she to be nominated, she would be only the second justice on the court who didn't go to an Ivy League school. The other one being... Seriously? Yeah, the other one is is Justice Barrett, who went to Notre Dame. Right. Now, Notre Dame is not an Ivy League school, but it is a private school. So mm-hmm. she would be also the only no one... Also no slouch, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and Notre Dame is a great school as well, yeah. It's actually one of the reasons why... I'm kind of rooting for Judge Childs. Um, We're we're not really (laughs) taking sides, but I just like the fact that we're looking at candidates that are a little bit outside of the Beltway and a little bit outside of the Harvard-Yale. Ivy Tower, armchair theory. Yeah. Kind of mindset. Yeah. Yeah, so, So she graduated from USC in 1991. She did later earn an LLM from Duke University. Mm-hmm. I think it was in judicial studies. And um, for those that don't know, an LLM is basically a one-year, usually sort, sort of like a master's. It's like one-year specialization in, in, in a specific area of legal studies. A lot of international students do an LLM stint at American law schools. Yeah, and there are only certain available LLM degrees. Uh, if you're in a highly specialized area like tax, you'll you'll see more people get LLMs for that. But yeah, other than that, she actually was in in private practice in Columbia, South Carolina. And Childs, after she spent some time uh, in private practice, she became uh, the deputy director of the South Carolina Department of Later. That was in 2000. She also became the first female black partner for her time in Nexon Pruitt, which is a very large and prestigious law firm. And she joined that in its Columbia office. She did have quite a few uh, cases that she took when she was in private practice where she represented the employer in labor disputes. And so there are some mutterings uh, from unions across the country. No union has yet come out against her nomination, but certain people who are very pro-union have expressed some skepticism and said maybe we should look to somebody who's a little bit more friendly to labor. Uh, So she is getting some pushback already. Sorry, Um, folks. Everybody (laughs) deserves a lawyer in a dispute. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, but if if you're a a union leader, um, you can see why you would want to push President Biden in a different direction. Yeah, because she was... uh corporate side and employer side in her practice. So yeah, exactly. In 2006, she was actually elected by the state legislature to serve as a circuit court judge. This was also in Columbia. She spent pretty much her whole career in the South and in South Carolina. 
she was reelected in 2009 and she was elected to serve as the chief administrative judge for criminal courts. And she did. And, and go ahead. And Joe, just to clarify, that's a, that's a state level circuit court judge. So that's a, that's a trial. Correct. Judge, yeah. Right? She's she has actually had two positions as a trial judge. The first was in 2006 when she served uh, as a circuit court judge in Columbia. That was for the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was reelected to that. And then she also served as a chief administrative judge for the criminal courts. This is also in South Carolina. And she did that from 2008 until 2010. And she did that also for business courts. So, And I, I just asked to clarify because states have all kinds of weird names for different judges at different levels of, of courts and appeal. So where we call the federal circuit court, like the federal circuit court is a court of appeals. That's it's an appellate court. It's not a trial court. A lot of states will call their trial courts circuit courts, including Oregon and apparently South Carolina. So it's it gets confusing. But all of this so far, she's not been um, an appellate judge in her history so far. These are all trial judge levels, right? Yeah. So she was a state court judge until 2009 when President Barack Obama nominated her to the U.S. District Court for the District of South Carolina. She was an uncontroversial nomination. She was confirmed by voice vote. And she stayed there basically until very recently when she was nominated by President Biden to serve on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. This is a federal appellate court. And for those listeners who are not that familiar with federal circuit courts, the D.C. Circuit Court is considered kind of the next most influential court outside of the Supreme Court, and that's because with the D.C. Circuit, you tend to handle quite a few administrative law cases. And so there's quite there's been quite a few people nominated from the D.C. Circuit Court to the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh's one. Was, was RBG one? She wasn't yeah. chief judge of the DC Circuit, but she was, but she served on it. But she served on it, yeah, very briefly, very briefly. And and I think, Joe, like what I've heard is that the fact that President Biden only very recently nominated her to the to the Circuit Court was potentially like, people suspect it was to put her on level um, with other nominees because it is pretty unconventional to nominate a judge who has no appellate court experience. Um, That is to say, to nominate a judge who's only ever been at a trial level judge straight to the Supreme Court. Most nominees, my understanding, have served in some sort of appellate court before being nominated to SCOTUS. I agree with you. If if we're going by recent nominations, yes, I think... I think it's considered the safe pick to pick somebody mm-hmm. who has mm-hmm. experience as an appellate court judge. If we do look historically, though, some some Supreme Court justices have never even served in any capacity as a judge or been part of the judicial mm-hmm. branch at all. And I think Kagan, yeah, right? Yeah, she was the dean of Harvard Law School when she received the nomination. I don't think she had any judicial experience directly. I think you're right. Uh, you know, she did teach constitutional law at, at Harvard, so I think people weren't too concerned about her ability to grasp the issues that were coming before the court. Um, we actually have a fine law has a... 
an, an article about a, a list of all the Supreme Court justices with no prior judicial yeah. experience, and we can put that in the show notes for you guys. Yeah. She was nominated to the D.C. Circuit. That has been put on hold uh, because she is definitely in the running for the Supreme Court. So they're not going to move forward on the D.C. Circuit nomination until this. But if she is not the ultimate nominee, she could very well end up on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. So that is still a possibility for her. And it would still be a hugely influential role for her. As yeah, a, as a yeah. consolation prize, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not a bad uh, second place. Yeah. Um, so, kind of to, to do the quick wrap up, a little bit of a different resume than some of the other justices that are being considered. No Ivy League, wonderful schools, a, a great resume, but it's a little bit different than what we would maybe consider the the classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Supreme Court Justice recently. Yeah, and I was wondering, because she's a little um, not a cookie-cutter nominee, I was wondering what uh, if Biden had any special history with her or what it, what kind of motivated him to pick her. I know that she's pretty popular even amongst Republicans. Uh, for example, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina has, you know, has, has had good things to say about her. He said she has wide support in their state of South Carolina. Um, and, you know, he, you know, she's she's been pretty popular amongst all, all sides of the political spectrum. And that's a very serious consideration, I would think, mm-hmm. because uh, Lindsey Graham is actively going around and, and talking her up and saying that he thinks she would be a very good Supreme Court justice. And so if President Biden thinks that that's more than just talk mm-hmm. and Senator Graham would actually vote for her uh, and confirm her, which which he very well might do, it's, it seems to be heading in that direction. I, I would think that would be a strong point in her favor uh, so that it would have a more bipartisan feel to it. So I yeah. think that's why one of the reasons why she's such a strong candidate. Yeah, a little bit of an outlier, uh, whereas our other two nominees are a little bit more traditional um, in terms of a lot of rubber stamps that SCOTUS nominees have. For example, the current D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judge, Kentaji Brown-Jackson, she is, again, the judge on the Federal Court of Appeals in D.C., the same one where Judge Childs had just been nominated to. Um, Judge Jackson is 51, D.C. native, Miami-raised. Again, she's got these Ivy League credentials. She's a double crimson, graduated magna cum laude from Harvard and then cum laude from Harvard Law. She uh, had a fun little gap year uh, between college and law school working at Time Magazine as a researcher reporter. After law school, she had a crazy amount of uh, federal clerkships. So she had a federal district court clerkship and then a federal appellate court clerkship. Um, did a little year at a private D.C. firm, and then she got a SCOTUS clerkship for none other than Justice Breyer himself from 1999 to 2000. So, uh, you know, again, this is a pretty common pattern. You'll have SCOTUS families have all had, so many of them have had SCOTUS clerkships in the past, and many of them have clerked for the very judges that they are seeking to replace. Judge Jackson did a a number of stints in private practice at a lot of big law firms like Goodwin Proctor. Um, She helped a lot of women's organizations as her clients, writing some pro-life friendly amicus briefs. Um, 
She did some mediations and arbitrations at certain firms, but most of her work had not been in the private sector. She did a couple of stints at the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which is an independent federal agency within the judiciary created by Congress in response to, quote, widespread disparity in federal sentencing. She was a staffer there for a year, and then she'll, she'll come back to the Sentencing Commission later. But after that, in 2005, she was an assistant public defender in, in D.C., um, and she still draws a direct line between her work as a public defender and her later work as a judge, saying that she was, you know, st- really struck by how little her clients understood about the judicial system, the legal process, and so she would take extra care to make sure that defendants were aware of what's happening. And I think that's really important for a judge to be mindful of, and it's good experience for a judge to have, especially a trial judge. In 2007, she returned to private practice again at another big law firm that is named Morrison Enforcer, which we attorneys call MoFo. They call themselves MoFo. It's a fun name. Um, yeah, they, that that is legitimate for non-attorneys out there. They they do that on purpose. I, they they I really lean say, into yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, so we can say that on air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so, so, you know, she, she did a lot of, of appellate litigation and, uh, federal appeals there. So she has a lot of practice on, on the litigation side of appearing in federal court, um, even Supreme Court cases. Um, and then in 2010, President Obama nominated her to serve as vice chair on the, again, U.S. Sentencing Commission, um, and Congress confirmed her. So there she sought to reform um, and lessen harsh sentences, for example, for drug crimes by enacting several amendments to the federal sentencing guidelines, and then including, for example, allowing people with crack cocaine convictions to seek lighter sentences. That was kind of part of the work that she did there. And then Two years later, President Obama, who really seems to be a fan of Jackson, uh, nominated her this time to serve as a federal judge on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Now, that's D.C.'s trial court. Notable decisions that she made as a federal judge involved a lot of a lot of decisions against Trump, frankly, Um There was a decision in which Judge Jackson ruled that uh, the former White House counsel to President Trump was required to testify before the House Judiciary Committee as part of its investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election and in looking into Trump's possible obstruction of justice. Even though Trump said he had directed his uh, counsel not to do so. And Judge Jackson rejected Trump's lawyers' argument that federal courts lacked the power to review disputes between the executive branch and Congress over subpoenas, which was at issue here. Uh, Trump's lawyers also argued that the president has the sole authority to decide whether he and his senior aides will comply with subpoenas and testify about possible wrongdoing, and she she did she rejected that argument. Um, she stressed that quote presidents are not kings, and White House employees work for the people of the United States and take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. And so and she... That, that quote was so widely <laughs> disseminated after she had written it. I think as her judicial career has gone on, I think that was kind of the thing that really struck out at people. That was a, that was a big quote. Yeah. 
And so, you know, she she has some colorful language and, and memorable quotes. And but she's she's clearly if, if anything, she is her her decisions in D.C. are notable for giving Trump a hard time Um and some others, too, that have nothing to do with Trump's. For example, she um, she held in 2015 that um, the D.C. Department of Corrections, uh, you know, the prison system, had violated inmates' rights under the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, by failing to um, give him uh, certain accommodations upon his arrival. Um, so she's had a, you know, a number of interesting cases, but the, the, I guess the ones that make headlines politically are the ones about giving Trump a hard time. In 2021, President Biden nominated Jackson to the D.C. Circuit Court, which is the appellate court above where she is now, the D.C. District Court, and the same court where Judge Childs has been most recently nominated to. So in 2021, President Biden nominated her to the D.C. Circuit Court to fill the seat vacated by Judge Merrick Garland, who, as you might remember, stepped down from the D.C. Circuit Court to be attorney general. And um, Justice Jackson has been, of course, since confirmed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So she's been working there since last summer. And uh, yeah, so now she's potentially going to be she's already basically on the second highest court in the country and now a nominee for the highest court in the land, which is actually the basketball court that is above the Supreme Court. Oh, <laughs> it's a real thing. You know that there, that's that actually exists, right? There is a basketball court above SCOTUS and they call it the highest court in the land and the judges like blow off steam by playing ball. I didn't know that. Yes, that's a real thing. What? Huh. Allegedly, I mean, who knows? Like, I've obviously not been there. I was told it's a real thing. Maybe it's like Santa Claus, though. <laughs> I want to believe it. So, I'm that sounds like a that sounds like a hazing ritual for new <laughs> law clerks. Like, yeah, meet us up at the highest I court of the RBG land. We'll play some Scalia ball. Playing basketball. <laughs> I mean, they would go to opera together. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's Justice Jackson, and then. We have a third nominee. I can talk about California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger. Yeah, so Kruger, as we talked about earlier, is 45. If she were to be nominated, confirmed, uh, she would be the youngest. Uh, Justice Barrett just turned 50 in January, and she's currently the youngest on the court. But uh, Leandra Kruger is also a Harvard University graduate, and then a Yale Law School graduate. So she's already my least favorite pick. Um, (laughs) (laughs) In 2001, she spent, after getting her JD in 2001, also, I'm just going to say she's like, she's only like five years older than me. So (laughs) it's another one of those, like, what have you been doing with your life? You idiot type things. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just an, oh no. So after getting her JD, she spent a year in private practice and then she clerked for DC circuit judge, David Tattel. um, And then she clerked for Supreme court justice, John Paul Stevens. And then after a few years in private practice, she, served as assistant U.S. Solicitor General in 2007. 
So I assume that'll probably get some tut-tuts from activists since she technically worked in the Bush administration. (laughs) In 2011, she argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of the Obama administration in Hosanna... To make up for her stints. (laughs) (laughs) In Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church versus the EEOC. In this religious liberty and employment discrimination case, she argued that the, quote, ministerial exception, which is, I'm unfamiliar with this, but the First Amendment doctrine that gives religious institutions discretion over Mm -hmm. who they employ as, quote, ministers. Um, She argued that that exception should not bar a teacher from suing for discrimination based on a disability. Mm Mm-hmm. She argued against the very existence of the doctrine, taking a really aggressive position that religious orgs should have the same right of rights of association as other groups. But the court held in a 7-2 decision that the ministerial exception protects the right of religious institutions to decide their matters of faith and doctrine without, without Uncle Sam interfering. Um, and then... Following that stint at DOJ, she was nominated to the California Supreme Court by Governor Jerry Brown in 2014. And then if confirmed, she would be, like Faye he said earlier, she would be the youngest justice since Clarence Thomas joined at 43. Man, Clarence Thomas, you've been around for a while, yeah. dog. That's it. <laughs> How old is he now? He's in his early 70s, isn't he? Oh, he's got a ways to go. Okay. Yeah. He's still young. Yeah, I mean, um, that was George H.W. Bush was ahead of his time nominating uh, nominating someone really young. What What is the longest tenure on the bench? I think it's something like 36 years. I think uh, he might have a he's shot. He's got a shot then. Yeah. You hear that, Ginny? Watch what your man eats. Stop putting <laughs> so much salt in his food. Make sure he takes his BP pills. <laughs> I'll have you know, Jenny Thomas believes in every American's God-given right to put as much salt in their food as they want. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. 